Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Be Green with Amy. I'm Amy. Back in 2012, my husband Rick and I adopted a whole food plant-based lifestyle. And together, we lost over 130 pounds. And now I coach others who wish to lose weight or gain improved health. So please click like and share. You can post comments for our guests. You can tell us where you're from. You can even type in be strong, be well, and be green. Just test voice. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Yami is a board-certified pediatrician and certified lifestyle medicine physician. She's a passionate promoter of healthy lifestyles, especially the power of plant-based diets for the prevention of chronic disease. Please click like to help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Yami Kazorla. Greenings. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so excited. So many of our audience is either planning on having children or they already have them. And this plant-based lifestyle is so beneficial for everyone, but this is kind of a tricky thing for the people who have families. Sometimes we may have well-intended relatives and friends who may think that they're giving us helpful advice about whether or not we should feed certain things to our children. And that was something that we were talking about earlier before we came on the broadcast was that this is something that you do help people with. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm a board certified pediatrician. I'm a primary care doctor. So the majority of what I do is see patients on an outpatient basis in the office for well child checks and sick visits and things like that. But for a long time, I have had outside interests in plant-based nutrition, but also in lifestyle medicine. And I'm able to integrate my knowledge and my experience with those things in the office as well so that I can help my patients and hopefully prevent chronic conditions from affecting them in their lives so that they can live long, healthy, joyful lives. Well, that's really great. I bet a lot of people wish that they could run around the corner and see a doctor <laughs> like you, <laughs> because that would be so helpful. And it is something that I wanted to do is that we have something that we like to do and it's called true or false. And I'm going to do that right now. I am going to post a true or false question. So you guys in the audience, listen to the question and type in true or false in the comments below. And we are going to start this off with a very interesting true or false question. So our first question is true or false. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics states that an appropriately planned vegan diet is healthful for all stages of life. And so you guys just type in true or false, guess your answer. And then what we're going to do now is we're going to ask Dr. Yami to address that question. What do you say, Dr. Yami? I love this segment of your show. This is super fun. And the answer is true. Yeah. So we know not just from the American Academy of Dietetics, but lots of organizations in different countries. So Canada, Great Britain, and Italy now, they are all supporting a well-planned plant-based diet for all stages of life. That includes pregnant people. It includes athletes. It includes children. And of course, the key statement there is well-planned. People sometimes hear that and they think, oh, that means it's going to be hard and complicated. But really what I want people to hear from that is that no matter what 
style of eating you're going to choose, you should be mindful about it. You should be thinking about it. <laughs> so it's not like you should just like, you know, not care about what you're eating, no matter how you're eating, it should be well planned. And that includes eating a plant based diet. Very good. Well, there's a lot of things that go into that. And of course, one of the things that goes into it is that people are sometimes concerned about protein. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put another true or false up for our people, and it is true or false. Breast milk has a lot of sugar and is low in protein. True or false? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I feel like we should be playing like the Jeopardy song during yeah, this. We need you a know, I think that would probably stump a lot of people. Yes. But it's actually true. Breast milk is very sweet and it actually is pretty low in protein. It's a lot lower in protein than cow's milk. So a lot of people think, you know, of course, breast milk is perfect for human babies. So we want human babies to drink breast milk. That's a good thing. Okay. But then all of a sudden we're thinking, well, are kids getting enough protein and, you know, being concerned about that? Do we need to feed them a lot of beef when they turn six months, all of these questions. And really what I tell parents is that we are overemphasizing and we are over-focusing on protein. As long as your child is eating sufficient calories from a variety of plant foods, they're getting enough protein. It's not really a concern for children. Okay. Now, if your child is malnourished and not getting enough food, it could be a problem, but that applies to all children around the world, no matter what they're eating. If they're not eating enough, they could become protein deficient and that's a problem. But if they have enough calories from a variety of whole plant foods, not an issue. Well, that's great. Angela said, I think it contains 6% protein, thus low in protein. Would you agree with that? Yeah. It's like a lot of people, they just, are really thinking that things need to be high in protein for it to be healthy for humans. And when I point out the breast milk, which I think a lot of people would agree that breast milk is a perfect food for human babies, they're surprised to hear that it's actually a low protein food. Right. Do you want to talk about the fat content in breast milk as well? Yeah. And so it's, um, I don't remember exactly how much fat and it varies, of course, from woman to woman. Some women make more fat in their breast milk, but it's not super high either. Really the majority of breast milk is pretty high in, in simple sugars and carbohydrates. Um, and it's about 20 calories per ounce. The point I'm trying to make when I talk about it is just that this is a food that's perfect for humans, perfect for babies, and it's not a high protein food. So we don't need to be that worried about shoving, quote, protein into our children's mouths because we're afraid that they're going to be deficient. But then that also leads to the other problem, which is how we are characterizing foods based on macronutrients only. So we think about animal products and people automatically think protein. And that's one of my pet peeves because you go to a restaurant and you order a salad and they ask you, would you like protein on that? And I just get irritated every time because my whole salad has protein. <laughs> what they mean is, do you want meat on your salad? But yeah. remember that animal products, it's also a combination of things. So unless you isolate protein from something and you make a protein powder, if you're eating 
chicken breast, it's not just protein. It also has fat, which includes saturated fat. Okay. Same thing for eggs, same thing for dairy, same thing for beef or whatever other meat you're having. So yes, that food contains protein, but it also contains fats and other constituents that could be harmful for our health. So that's just one thing to remember that we shouldn't be thinking of food as just like this isolated macronutrient, because then we either don't realize the other benefits of that food or might forget that there are some parts of that food that could potentially be harmful to us. Yeah, that is so true. You're so right about that. But there are different stages of child's life where the food may be different. Do you want to talk about that? Maybe we could start off with the infants that are, well, I guess you it must be so difficult for you to categorize things because you've got the infants, but then you've got the breastfeeding infants and then formula fed infants. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and, and talk I guess about that? the main thing to remember, it's really not that complicated, but the main <laughs> thing to remember is that the younger children that are starting to eat foods and once they transition and they're eating mostly foods for their intake, maybe they're still breastfeeding a little bit longer because some moms choose to breastfeed past a year, which is fantastic. I encourage that and I support that. But really past a year, they should be primarily eating food for their calories and for their nutrition. For those children, we have to be very careful that we're not overemphasizing really high fiber, um, low calorie density foods. So they really shouldn't just be eating a bunch of raw vegetables and a bunch of fruits and not having much else because then they're not going to be getting enough calories. It doesn't happen very often that this would be the case, but that's just one caveat that I really wouldn't recommend toddlers to be on raw diets or, or you know, those kinds of diets. And, you know, you may hear from people that say that, well, toddlers need more fat. I don't think it's that they necessarily need more fat. They just have very small stomachs. So their stomach capacity is very small. You know, their, their little bodies are very small and they're very interested in exploring their environment. So they're not going to sit down and eat these long, luxurious European style meals. Okay. Like they literally just want to eat enough that it sates their hunger and they're ready to go play. So when they have their food, it should be composed of some foods that are higher in calorie density. So we do want to include your nut butters and your avocados and even some processed foods like breads and things like that because the calorie density is a little bit higher and they're able to get sufficient calories from the small meals that they're eating. And all parents know this, all parents know that when kids get to toddlerhood, it seems like they just have a bite here and a bite there, but they're really just interested in playing. So if it's just a bite of raw broccoli and a you know bite of apple, then it could be not enough calories throughout the day. So that's the main thing to remember. Otherwise, it's not that much different, really. Once your child is eating food for a variety of food, <laughs> that's really the main thing. Since we're talking about transitioning in from the infant to the toddler, let's do this true or false question. If a baby makes a dissatisfied face after tasting a new food and continues to do so after three attempts, the baby is unlikely to ever enjoy that food. True or false? So guys, type in what you think it is and Dr. Yami's going to let us know what the answer is. Such a great question. I love this one. <laughs> so this is actually false. And 
a lot of parents are probably going to think it's true. In fact, the research shows that the majority of parents give up after one to three times of offering their child a food, especially if that child makes a dissatisfied face or makes cues that they seem to not like the food. However, research also shows that it can take between eight to 15 exposures of a food before a child will even start to accept the food. Keyword being accept, not even necessarily like. So beyond that eight to 15 times, there's still a few other attempts before they're like, okay, now I actually like it. I accept it, but now I like it. And most parents give up way before then and they start identifying their child as picky and they start giving their child only those foods that they feel like their child will eat, which often includes mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and crackers and grilled cheese sandwiches, you know? And so that really just reinforces that uh, decreased exposure, basically, because the parents stop exposing their children to these foods. And the only way for a child to learn to like a food, and the only way a human, because this includes adults too. (laughs) I know you all know adults who are very selective and who claim that they don't like vegetables, but the only way for a child or any human to learn to like a food is through consistent and repeated exposure. So the key word is exposure, exposure, exposure. However, we don't want to force our children. So we're not trying to force our children to eat a certain amount or even a certain food, but our job is to expose our children to these foods. I remember I have three kids. I mean, they're all adults now, but I remember, but I wasn't plant-based and neither were they when they were in that stage of life. And I remember sometimes having it where they may not accept a food. They're little bitty guys, but they still have a lot of intelligence and you can really have a dialogue with them. They may not even be verbal, but they can pretty much understand what you're saying and they really pick up on your cues. So let's say last week I you know, introduced something that I thought that they might want to try and this particular toddler didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And maybe I wait a week later. So now I have to come up. It doesn't mean anything. I could care less if you like this or not. I can't overdo it, right? So what would your approach be with the spoon? Well, <laughs> or whatever. Um, I like to refer back to Ellen Satter's division of responsibilities, and it takes parents a while to get used to this, and it takes some practice because I had to go through it myself, and so I know at first it can be very anxiety-provoking to parents, especially when you have a toddler. But the division of responsibilities is that there are different roles and responsibility responsibilities between the parent and the child. The job of the parent is to decide what, when, and where. So what are you going to prepare? When are you going to offer it? And where is the child going to eat? That is your job. So basically you need to decide what the menu is going to be. You need to go get the food. You need to prepare it. And then you need to offer it. After that, your job is done. Mm. Then it transfers over to your child. Your child's job is to decide if they're even going to eat the food at all and how much. You don't cross over into their autonomy. So it's not your job to be like another bite. Here's the airplane. Right, right. You can't have that until you have this. Come on, if you if you finish your food, then you can get dessert. So that's crossing over into their 
responsibility and their responsibility is to decide if and how much. I know that it can be anxiety provoking for parents who aren't used to doing this, but the intention of the division of responsibilities is to decrease the stress. And the research shows that when we practice in this way, our children actually end up having a more variable diet. They have a diet that is, you know, a palate that is more expanded, that includes more things. Because when we start encouraging and forcing and cajoling and bribing our children to eat foods, it actually decreases the amount of fruits and vegetables and the variety of foods that they eat. And it's counterintuitive, but that's just the case. The opposite is true when we try to restrict their food guess what? They want that food even more. <laughs> so mm. we have to be careful with our approach, even though it's well-meaning. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. And I've often heard people talk about that it may not be just that food that the ch child is not accepting at that time. It may be the manner in which it was prepared. It may not be the taste. It could be the texture. Exactly. So and that's why I always say that you know, variety is the key. So when I counsel parents at my office on starting complementary foods and initiating that journey, I call it baby flavor boot camp. Oh, I really, like this. <laughs> I just want the babies to taste these foods. And, you know, at first, when a baby's not ready to feed themselves, you may be spoon feeding purees. Later on, when they are done with that and they want to feed themselves, then you do more baby led weaning where you're offering soft foods that they can eat themselves. But I encourage parents to try a new flavor, something new every single day. I want them to be exposed to a new flavor, starting with those green leafy vegetables. So as these children learn to accept and then later on like the flavor of these foods, it increases the chances that they're going to like other foods that are similarly flavored. But as the parent, you know, you get to decide, do you want to, when your child is older, you want to steam the broccoli, you want to roast the broccoli, you want to do a broccoli soup. I mean, all the different ways that you can prepare because as adults, we like having things prepared different ways too. But the key thing is don't give up. So if you think your child doesn't like a food, you don't give up exposing them to that food. You continue to cook that food, prepare that food, offer that food, but then your job is done and they decide if and how much they want to eat of that food. Oh, that's so excellent. Angela just commented, thoroughly enjoying this chat. Awesome. <laughs> I'm thoroughly Angela. enjoying it. <laughs> and so I wish I could do a little time travel and, and go plant-based <laughs> earlier and take some of your advice, but it's never too late. Don't worry about it. But I'm glad that we're talking about this. Now I am what they call SOS free. So I don't use added sugar, oil, and salt. I'm not no fat or low fat because I do incorporate nuts and seeds, but there are some people that are even not doing the nuts and seeds mm -hmm. so and, and avocados. But this is something that may not necessarily be appropriate for the young children. You want to talk about that? Because this is something, and when we get excited about this lifestyle, then we're trying to spread it to our children, but we got to kind of Yes. Think about that. So go ahead. And yeah, talk we about have that. to be cautious, just like I was talking about earlier, especially with the little ones, because their stomach volume is so small. You know that for us that we eat low in calorie density, we like it because we get to eat big volumes. Yeah. And I will admit I'm a volume eater. So <laughs> I feel safe and comfortable and happy if I get to eat large amounts of food. The toddler is the opposite. They're the opposite creature, okay? They don't have time or interest in eating a 
five pound salad. Okay. So it's not appropriate for them to eat that way. If, they, you know, later on in their lifetime, if they want to do that and they have time to eat massive amounts of, you know, low calorie density foods, that's going to be up to them. But when they're toddlers, we really do need to be including some higher calorie density foods. So the nut butters and the avocados, those are going to be, you know, health promoting. And like I said before, even some processed foods. So it's okay to use uh, some oils here and there. You don't have to really, you can get around with not using it, especially if you're eating, you're using the nut butters and those kinds of things. But we do want to just ensure that they're getting a mix of calorie densities, including those higher calorie density foods, so that we can ensure that they're getting sufficient calories in their diet. Oh, very good. Okay, so I guess we're, maybe we should just do this chronologically. So we're going to move on up to the, maybe the next phase of life. Okay, we have Caroline. She said, tips for bringing my six-year-old on this journey. The two-year-old is pretty accepting, but the six-year-old, not so not much. so much. <laughs> well, I will say that um, personality influences some of this too. And when I went plant-based and vegan, over 10 years ago, my children were 18 months and six years old. However, my older one who was six at the time is just not, he's never been selective and he loves food and he's a foodie like me. So it was really, really easy. What I advise for older children, especially teenagers and for our partners, because mm -hmm. we get really excited about this and we just want everybody to change overnight is that we're patient we lead by example and also not make a big deal about it. Like mm. I wouldn't just walk into the house and then just announce, okay, everybody, we're going vegan and we're getting rid of all the animal products and we're never having meat again. And I'm getting rid of all the dairy because that's really stressful for people, especially people that don't like change and are afraid of change. So I would just start changing things here and there. And one of the easiest places to start and one of the most beneficial, I think, is eliminating and replacing dairy products. So if you're drinking cow's milk, switch over to an unsweetened fortified plant-based milk for your children. Now, the first thing I hear is like, well, they don't like any. There's over 20 different commercially available plant milks. There's oat, soy, rice, uh, cashew, Macadamia, like every, there's like a bazillion different kinds. So if they don't like one, try a different one. There's lots of different brands available. And so that's a good place to start. And then you can just slowly start using the recipes you already do. They're probably easier to veganize than you think. So if you like making let's say hamburger helper style, you know, with macaroni and you usually put like ground beef in there, change that ground beef for lentils. You know, you could still have the noodles, you put the cooked lentils in there and just make little changes here and there. And even at the beginning, maybe you don't even have to take out all the meat, just replace half of it and then slowly start transitioning your family that way. So that's one method. The other method for the older kids, especially for the teenagers, they've done studies on this to show that what you call a food can have a big impact. So I, like I said before, I wouldn't be calling everything vegan this or vegan that or plant-based this or plant-based that. It's kind of like the restaurants it, when, they, yeah. when they come up with a, a you know when you name look for at their the dish. menu. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> 
Southwest painted <laughs> desert soup. And you're like, oh, that sounds really good. I want some of that. You know, so when you call a food, call it by the ingredients, but make it exciting. And they won't even realize it doesn't have meat or animal products on there. So those are some tips that I give. And just lead by example as well for the older children. They'll see if you're happy and healthy and enjoying it and especially not trying to force them. They'll eventually come around and they'll be curious about it and want to learn more about it. Very good. Brenda says birthday parties, team sports, snacks several times a week, yep. blue cupcakes, red sugary drinks, pizza, chips. How can I help my kids navigate frequent social required team events? Oh man, it's it's life, isn't it? I'm telling oh. you, kids in school and the stress of always having to think about all of these things and bring stuff for all of these things. So there's a lot of things to think about when you have kids in school and their school age and in, in sports. There's no right or wrong way to approach this. And your approach may change over time. But what I recommend is that you sit down and you formally decide on how you're going to approach it at this moment. Then you try it on and then you can tweak it over time. When my kids were younger and they couldn't care less, it, there wasn't a difference, then I would just always bring a replacement for them, especially for the birthday parties and classes and things like that. I would just bring the plant-based whatever. As they got older, I shifted the responsibility to them and now they can choose and I think that for us, it's healthier for a lot of different reasons, partly because we're so busy and yeah. also because I, as they get older and they start to realize the difference, then it can create a, a little bit of conflict and food issues there. So you may want to approach it that way. You may want to approach it a different way. It's really up to you. But in general, I believe that when the kids are old enough that they can start tuning into their own bodies, deciding if they want to partake of something and then feeling afterwards how it makes them feel, that allows them to practice those skills for when they're off in the real world by themselves, because they're going to be, and we're not going to be there all the time to tell them, yes, you can eat that. No, you can't eat that. And making those decisions. <laughs> we want them to practice making those decisions. But in my household, it's always a Accompanied by conversations, conversations about health and our bodies and well-being and intuitive eating, tuning into our bodies. And then I just have to trust that my children are going to do the right things for them. And you, I mean, that goes for a lot of things, not just eating, right? Yes. But it's our responsibility to launch them into self-reliant, independent adults that make good decisions, not just about their food, but about a lot of the things in their life. And the sooner we recognize that and give them the skills to do that, then the better they will be functioning as adults. So yes. I think this is a, a very good example of those kinds of things. We're going to take it back a little bit because we have somebody that came in and, and wanted to talk about breastfeeding. So Marla wants to know, she's breastfeeding. She said, I crave eggs even throughout my pregnancy. Why is this? And what can I do to stay on track? Oh, <laughs> well, gosh. congratulations on your pregnancy. What is it? I think it's just being human you probably like eggs <laughs> and <laughs> eggs are, you know, they're calorically dense while you're breastfeeding, you need extra calories and your body probably remembers that eggs are tasty and they have, they're rich in calories and nutrition. Mm. So, you know, it's up to you. If you want to eat eggs, you can eat eggs. If not, then just make sure you're eating enough calories. I'll just admit that I've been plant-based over 10 years. 
And the only thing I miss is eggs. I loved eggs and just they're, they're so great, but I don't want to eat eggs for a lot of different reasons. And I'm really happy that now they have some products. We don't eat them all the time, but just eggs. I don't know if you've ever tried those before. Probably not because you're SOS, but but for those of you that aren't SOS free, or if you're willing to try a a little bit of um, processed food, just egg is a product that you can buy at the store. It's in the refrigerated section and you can make scrambles and omelets. Of course, there's always the tofu scrambles or the chickpea scrambles and those kinds of things. You can use some black salt, which has a little sulfuric flavor in it to replicate a little bit of that eggy taste as well and see if that sates your cravings. But part of it may also just be that you need more calories. And so these cravings are coming from your body telling you, I want food, I want calories. But I wouldn't take it so far as to mean that you're deficient in something because that's what people usually do. It's like, oh, I crave this. It must mean I need magnesium or it must mean I need protein. No, probably not. It's probably just... It's probably just a craving. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so right. don't because, overthink it too much. Right. Because your body isn't deficient in chocolate. So <laughs> I don't know. Some may argue yeah, that you can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I was fortunate enough that when my friends had encouraged me to breastfeed, I wasn't even considering it because I was bottle fed. So it didn't occur to me when I had that opportunity. But I did consider it and I actually did it. And I'm glad I did. I used to joke with my other breastfeeding friends because it was, this was before it's plant-based and it was like, what? I can do this and I can burn how many calories a day just by doing this? And and we used to joke, it was like, how can we continue this for the rest of our, <laughs> our lives? Breastfeeding forever. <laughs> right. But you are, you're, you are burning extra calories just like you are in, in pregnancy. You do need more calories and that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Yeah, it's about okay. 300 calories per day extra that you need, which depending on your diet and you know, your average calorie density of your diet may be a snack or it may be a whole meal, you know, depending on how, you know, what kind of foods you eat. So just be mindful of that and don't deny yourself food if you're actually hungry. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Chen wants to know what is the first solid food I should feed my baby. I guess that's just a big deal when you're I love that question. Oh. Yeah. So I'll just say that this My answer has changed throughout my career because of what I was taught in the past was like rice cereal, white rice cereal, you know, the first, because it's so bland and it's not going to cause any reactions. Well, there's lots of reasons we don't want to do that anymore. One, um, because we worry about rice and, you know, the effects that uh, rice has takes up arsenic from the soil and those kinds of things. Um, But also now I don't, believe that the first food that we should give our children should be bland. I think it should be the opposite. And I think it should be something that is difficult for them to learn to like. So we know breast milk is very sweet. And for those moms that have breastfed, did you ever taste your own breast milk? I know it's weird. I made myself taste my breast milk. I was just so curious. It's really (laughs) sweet. It's so sweet. So as humans, we are born for a preference for sweet foods because it's evolutionarily advantageous. You know, sugar is going to be more calorie dense. Seeking those high calorie density foods is going to increase our survival. Breast milk is naturally sweet. So it's in our best interest to naturally like those foods. However, it's more difficult to acquire the preference or the flavor for bitter foods. 
in this day and age, though, eating those foods is going to be beneficial for us because we have an overabundance of calories now. We're not trying to survive famine to famine. Now we right. have Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's and everything down the street. So we have plenty of calories available. Mm -hmm. And it's really going to help us live long, healthy lives to eat those foods that are health promoting, such as vegetables, which some of which are bitter. Yes. So I recommend to my families that they start with the bitter leafy greens for their babies, well-cooked and pureed, and then launch into that baby flavor boot camp where every day they're exposing them to a new food, a new flavor. And it's not that you have to worry about your baby getting a big volume of these foods because they're still getting almost all of their calories and nutrition from either breast milk or formula, okay? But right. I want them to start tasting these foods. So it's really just taste, 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 exposure, exposure, exposure. But I want it to be a strong flavor. I want it to be bitter. <laughs> and I want it to be like those foods that are going to be health promoting and let us live long, healthy lives. That's great. And I, I always encourage our viewers and listeners to type in the chat. If they hear something from our guests, that's like a pearl of wisdom or a take home or, Hey, I didn't know that to type it in. And, and if I was typing something in, I think that would have been one of the things that I would have typed in because it's so counterintuitive of what we've been taught. And that's what I like about you. You're up on the latest research and information and even when you just said that you had been recommending something to your patients for such a long time and you didn't hesitate when you found out that this would be a better choice and you didn't hesitate to change whatever the research shows and whatever could be the best outcome for their health is really what matters. So I really, I applaud you for that. I'm really nice thing that you can do. Well, this is something that may be a little bit different, but let's see, we have Alicia wants to know, what are intact whole grains and how can I eat them? Oh my goodness. So many people get confused. I mean, just hearing the word intact, it's like, yes. what, what does that even mean? And then you get excited about it. And maybe even people buy some of these things and they bring it home and they're like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do with it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That question made me hungry because it's lunchtime here, so I'm ready to oh. eat. But I actually did a podcast episode on this, and on my social media series, I have pictures that – so if people want to look me up on Instagram, they can look that up. One thing that's really interesting is that we rarely eat intact whole grains in our country. So my, so what I taught cooking classes for a long time, and this is a question that would stump my students all the time, I would first ask them, give me examples of whole grains, and people could just think of like whole wheat bread that's not intact. So an intact whole grain means that it's in its most whole form and we haven't turned it into flour. We haven't pulverized it or anything. We didn't remove anything from it. So examples would be things like oat groats, which are delicious, millet, um, of course, brown rice, kasha, What's the other name for that one? Can't remember. But you know, they're in their most intact form and they're all cooked the same way. Basically, you just boil them in water until they're soft. And then you can eat them just like you would any other whole grain. So like if you would brown rice, you can eat them as a side or in some kind of casserole or something like that. But the key component is that they're whole and they're in their most whole form. You haven't turned it into a flour. 
very good. And when people think of it like that, where there's, you know, just like if you're going to cook rice or quinoa or whatever, you just, it's just another type of grain that you're just going to eat. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, it seems that you can eat them and, and either put them in water or you could put them in some kind of a broth Yep. and they'll absorb that flavor and be very flavorful. So mm-hmm. depending on if you want it for breakfast or for a more savory feel or whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So now we talked about that of course, the vegan diet can, is good for all ages and stages of life as long as it's appropriately planned. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to get too much in the minutia of micronutrients and so forth, but there are certain things that are important that we really need to talk about. So can we go through some of those things as far as the vitamins and, and so forth that we want to maybe even the supplementation? Yes. So anybody that's on a predominantly or completely plant-based diet really needs to be supplementing their B12. You can get it from fortified foods, but especially with children, and since I deal with children, it can be inconsistent and that stresses parents out. So one day they may eat the whatever you made with nutritional yeast and the other day they may not. So I think it's just easier to give a multivitamin or a vitamin for that that has B12 in it. So that's the most important one for all people that are on plant-based diets. The other one that is important and with studies of vegan children and you know vegan people, plant-based people, it is saying that there is a risk for vitamin D deficiency. Now, vitamin D is not a nutrient that we typically get from food, except for the fact that they put it into food as a fortification. And one of the common ways they do that for the omnivorous diet is through cow's milk. So a lot of people even call it vitamin D cow's milk, you know, because for a long time, for many decades, they've been putting vitamin D into cow's milk. And so that has helped a lot of children not become deficient in vitamin D. Typically, we get vitamin D from sunlight and in our skin, it converts and forms vitamin D. Okay. So, but that can be very difficult for us now, depending on where we live, like I live up in the Pacific Northwest. And right now we're in the time of year where our days are super short. And it's really sad because our sunlight doesn't last very long and it's cold. So you're not going to be going out in the middle of the day, arms and legs exposed for the two hours it takes to get enough vitamin D from the sunlight this time of year. So it increases the risk. Also wearing long sleeves and sunblock and hats because we want to appropriately protect our skin decreases our vitamin D uh, absorption from UV rays. And so for a lot of people, for all of my patients, I recommend vitamin D supplementation. Also, you can get it from fortified plant milks, but you just have to make sure that the plant milk that you're using is fortified. But like I said, for little kiddos that may have inconsistent intake and one day they like something and one day they don't, then doing a supplement may be beneficial. But I do recommend that you speak with your physician about this to see if where you live, there is an increased risk for that. So that's the second one. And then the third one is still, you know, we're still kind of figuring this one out and there's no formal recommendations for dosage and that kind of thing, but it's going to be the omega-3 fatty acids, which is recommended for pregnant people. So for pregnant people, it is recommended that they are supplementing that omega-3 DHA in particular. Okay. And now we have some evidence that maybe we need to be thinking about that for our toddlers. The good news is, is that there are 
vegan algal oils from algae that have the DHA and the EPA, and you can supplement that way. A lot of people know that we can get plenty of the ALA form of omega-3 from a plant-based diet, leafy greens, our flax seeds, our chia seeds, our hemp seeds, walnuts. Um, however, some people are not going to convert enough of the ALA into the DHA and EPA form. Some people will. And so there are some thinking that it might be beneficial to just supplement that, but definitely that's one to speak with your physician about. So those are the three main ones, as long as you're otherwise eating variety of plant foods and you're not restricting any portion of the plant food. Like if your child has a lot of allergies and you're not eating any nuts or any beans or those kinds of things, then there may be some other nutrients that need to be supplemented, but that's one that you should speak with your physician or a dietitian about. So is there any time where it would be appropriate to do a blood test for any of these? Yeah, it could be. Now, I'm not one that I just automatically test all of my plant-based kids for deficiencies. But depending on where you live, depending on if you develop symptoms or if you feel like you're not getting enough of a certain nutrient, we can check for things like vitamin D deficiency. We can check for anemia, which iron deficiency is not increased. There's not an increased risk for iron deficiency anemia in plant-based eaters than non-plant-based eaters. It just happens to be that iron deficiency is the number one deficiency in the world. So it's just common, okay? So, um, and certain stages of life, it might be something that your pediatrician automatically checks. Like we check it automatically in babies at a certain age to make sure that they're not iron deficient. But beyond that, you could always ask your doctor to check blood work if you're concerned. But unless I do a diet review and I feel like there's things missing or a child hasn't been supplemented, I don't just routinely order them in plant-based eaters. Well, that's good to know because I think a lot of the adults are all about getting these blood tests. And for me personally, I've been low and, and I was telling you that I live in Florida. I also spend almost every hour with my husband and we both had, were tested for vitamin D and I was very, very low and he was just fine. Yeah. And I like to be outdoors. We, you know, we both like to be outdoors. So I think that at least for adults, that might be something that people should consider because it's like you said, it's not really a vitamin, right? It's more like a hormone. Exactly. And it can regulate other things besides worrying about your bone density. That's not the only thing that vitamin D. You want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? And vitamin D metabolism is complex and it involves a lot of different organs. I have an entire podcast episode on this with somebody who's way smarter than me <laughs> that can explain it all. Okay. But yeah, it's complex. And I'll admit too that I have been really vitamin D deficient. And so I had to really boost my vitamin D levels up and it made me more aware. And as I've checked vitamin D levels in more of my patients here, it's just more common and Part of it is just because of our latitude where we live. And so it's just something to remember. Also, the darker complected you are, the more likely you are to be vitamin D deficient. But it is important and it is something to think about it. And it's not just for plant-based eaters, but it just happens that if you are a plant-based eater and you're avoiding some of these animal products that are traditionally fortified, that might put you even lower 
compared to the omnivores. And so you do have to be a little bit more thoughtful and mindful about it. Well, that's very important to know. I think that the research is showing more and more that the vitamin D is something that is being overlooked and, and maybe needs to be looked at a little more closely. I believe that in the beginning when they determined what the recommended daily allowance was, it was because of what the vitamin D would do as far as promoting bone health. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't at that time, they were not aware that the vitamin D is also something that can affect your mood and all kinds of things. And I think it's really important. So I'm glad that we were talking about that. Yeah. So Well, and especially like, now with COVID, we know mm. that vitamin D is also involved with our immune system and our gut health. So it is important to think about, especially now for people that want to do everything they can to strengthen themselves and support their systems to, you know, potentially if they get COVID that it's not a severe infection. Yes, very good. I'm glad you talked about that because I've, I've been hearing a lot about that too. So I think it's really important. Now we have these teenagers, right? I remember, like I told you, I have, I have three children. I mean, they're adults now. I remember one of my daughters brought home a friend. For, I think it was, it might've been when she was visiting from college and we had her over for dinner. I think we had pasta and some other things at that time. And she said, I'm vegan. Of course, we weren't plant-based at that time. So she took a little pasta and put it on her plate and that was it. Just didn't get a good warm and fuzzy feeling about it. I didn't say anything. You know, I said, please have as much pasta as you like. We have plenty because we'll have leftovers. So please eat as much as you like. And she didn't eat very much at all. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, maybe she just doesn't like what we're eating or hopefully there's not some kind of an eating disorder going on. Maybe if you want to talk about that as far as maybe these restrictive things happening with the teenagers and what we can look for. So. That is something that we want to be cautious about because some people may use the type of diet or a restrictive diet change as an excuse or as kind of a cover for an eating disorder. But I think for the most part, people just become afraid that teenagers are using it <laughs> as right. a cover. Okay. Um, but but you just have to kind of explore and know your child and understand are they really doing this for a reason? And I would say the younger people now, one of their main drives is going to be the environment. So they're really worried. They're worried about what's going to happen to our planet. They're worried about sustainability and they want to do something about it. So they may change to a plant-based diet for that. So if you know your child's really passionate about that, and then you want to learn about how they can make their diet health promoting, and it's not just French fries and you know Diet Coke, then And if they're interested in that, great. If your child doesn't really have much of a reason and you see that really they're just eating less and less or restricting more and more, suddenly they're not just vegan, but they're gluten-free and they're grain-free and now they're not eating beans and, you know, and you see that there might be some restrictive behavior going on there, then it's probably just that they're using that diet as, or that way of eating as a cover for overall restriction. And then that needs to be addressed by a professional. That's good to know. Somebody was, I'm kind of going back and forth in the stages of life. I was remembering how, because we were talking about maybe somebody not wanting to eat something and maybe being restricted, but somebody was talking to me about their toddler that they were so surprised because in the beginning, the toddler seemed to enjoy a lot of the different foods that they presented. And then suddenly, like a switch went off, 
Mm-hmm. And the toddler started refusing a lot of these foods that the toddler had been enjoying, and they were so confused about it. I never experienced that, but I think it would it would confuse me too. So yes. is this something that you wanted to talk it's about? Normal. Yes, it's normal. <laughs> it should be expected. And in oh. fact, I counsel my families about this because feeding infants is really fun. Feeding infants is just so fun. It's new. You're offering them all these new foods. They're making all these facial expressions. They're enjoying it. Then they become a toddler and they develop something called neo phobia. And so they don't want new foods. They start rejecting old foods. They go through food jags and that's normal. It doesn't change the division of responsibilities. It doesn't change that you're going to continue to offer these foods. And then the other thing that I tell parents to help ease their anxiety is that toddlers need less energy per, you know, like square inch. Like they just need less calories overall for their body than when they were infants. They're not growing as fast. And as long as they're following their growth curves and the pediatrician's happy with their growth, then you don't need to worry either. They're eating enough. It just really stresses parents out because they may go a couple of meals where they either don't eat anything or just eat a bite or two and they just run off to play. And you're like, how are you sustaining your life? How is this even abiding by the laws of physics? You know, But it's true. They do great. They grow fine. Their bodies are intelligent. Um, So you don't want to change your strategy just because they have these normal developmental stages in their life where they're not eating as much and they're rejecting foods. Now, if your child is losing weight, if there's other issues that definitely needs to be addressed by the physician that they see. But in general, this is a very common thing that toddlers do. Oh, that's good to know. And it also reminded me of somebody else that I encountered. She had actually adopted a child, but he was probably an adolescent when she adopted him. And it didn't come without some medical problems and and other things that go along with adopting someone at that age. Of course, there were digestive problems. A lot of things. I really commend her for sticking through it. And she's not plant-based though, but she kind of leans toward it a little bit. When he started going through puberty, he started breaking out. And fortunately, they encountered a dermatologist that told them to quit dairy, (laughs) which I was very surprised that she found a dermatologist that would say that. And she noticed that that helped. But her main concern, and of course they see it, the physician, she said to me, I'm so concerned because when I first adopted him, he he had some meat on him, you know? Mm -hmm. And she said, now he's so thin. And she pulled out her cell phone and showed me his picture. And he had his shirt off because he was at a swimming pool thing or something. And I'm looking at him. I didn't even see his ribs. To me, I thought he looked what maybe what Americans don't realize is normal. Mm -hmm. And and I said, so what did your doctor say? And she said, well, he doesn't seem to be concerned, but I I think I need to start doing something. So have you ever maybe encountered patients like that? Or what would you say? This is so common. (laughs) Yeah, this is more common. And also it's common in certain cultures too. So there are definitely certain cultures that they want to see their children a little meatier, a little thicker, that reassures them that they're feeding their children enough. Um, But what I tell parents, because parents come all the time, all the time, afraid that their children are too lean, they're too small, they're too short, they're too whatever, everything. Parents worry a lot about the size of their child's body, okay? This is something I address on a daily basis. What's important to me is not comparing them to other children, but 
watching their own curves. And so if they're following their curves, if they're tracking along their growth curves and they're doing great, I'm not really worried about it. And a lot of times you're right. Children might look a little bit leaner compared to other larger bodied children. And with our society and with the way that we eat and live, we do have more larger bodied children around. And so whenever we're comparing that, then it can seem like the leaner kids are really lean and that there's something wrong. But if we're following those growth curves, often we can be reassured that things are okay. Now, sometimes there are times that things are not okay and it needs to be addressed. But the majority of the time when parents are concerned about the size of their child's body, I am not concerned. I didn't want to give her medical advice, but when she had told me that the doctor wasn't concerned about it, I, I said, well, <laughs> you know, then that's something you should be thinking about. And yeah, I think right. we also need to be um, sensitive because we know that we don't want to start putting thoughts into a child's head if they're larger bodied either, or start shaming them or telling them that they need to be on a diet, we know how that affects them through their lives, right? The same thing happens with children that are leaner bodied, either we're telling them that they need to put meat on or that whatever, or we're praising them too much for being lean. And mm. as they go through puberty and they change, then mm. they panic when their bodies change and they're losing that source of what they thought was self-worth because we've been telling them this whole time, oh, you look so great. Oh, how do you stay so thin? Oh, you're, you know, you never gain a pound. And, you, you know, so we have to be really sensitive to these things and know that for the most part, as long as children have access to adequate calories and we're feeding them in a health promoting way, their bodies are going to do what their bodies are going to do. They might be bigger kids. They may be smaller kids. And a lot of it has to do with genetics. My husband was with us when we were having this conversation. And when I met my husband, now I told you about his, he had this really great transformation. But when I met him, he was very slim, very slim. And he could just he ate whatever he wanted and it never looked like he gained a pound. But he was relating to her. It was his experience going, especially through adolescence and puberty, which is what he remembered, was that he would kind of get a little chunky and then he'd go through this growth spurt mm -hmm. and be really slim. Yep. And then he'd get a little chunk, you know, and just kept going, mm -hmm. you know, back and forth like that. So he was trying to reassure her that maybe that that was something that she should also consider. The pediatricians have th their growth charts and they yes. monitor these things. Yes. And that was something I wanted to talk to you about also, the growth chart. When you have a breastfed baby, is mm -hmm. that baby going to be growing at the same pace and weight mm -hmm. and height that a bottle fed? And how does that work with the growth chart? How does that yeah, work? not necessarily. In fact, <laughs> like I was saying before, there can be a very wide uh, variation in the fat content of breast milk. And so some moms literally make cream. I'm not joking <laughs> with you. They make cream and they make lots of it. And some of these babies get fat. And I'm just going to say it because it's like the best thing ever. These babies get so fat that I hug them and it's like the most pleasing marshmallow sensation of my life. That's why I'm a pediatrician is so I can hug babies. They can hug babies. And yeah, like they get, and this is also something that's been studied. So humans, as far as mammals go, we are some of the fattest mammals when it comes to our babies. Our babies are really fat and this mm. is a protective thing. Okay. That's why there's almost 8 billion humans on this planet is because our babies survive. And so it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But we peak out in our 
fat percentage by six months. There's some babies that at six months old, they are 40% fat, their body composition. Wow. Can you believe that? So, so amazing. I love it. So um, these babies can be off the charts. And I tell moms, because for the most part, when you're breastfeeding a baby, it's very difficult to overfeed them. But like I said, there's different calorie contents of this breast milk. So moms make higher calorie breast milk. And so the babies get large, but studies show that this is actually protective of obesity later. But also just remember, like I said, genetics too. So some babies, they're just going to be bigger because they're going to be bigger. And some babies are going to be smaller because they're going to be smaller. And I don't pressure the moms that have these larger breastfed babies. And I reassure the moms that have these smaller breastfed babies because in the end, everything works out. And between nine and 15 months, these babies that are breastfed and they get really, really large, the growth chart starts to come down as they get more active and they're moving around and they're crawling and they're walking and they're cruising. And then they're transitioned off of breast milk onto solids. Then their growth curve comes to what we call the true curve where they're going to be for a while, you know? And so I watch it kind of come up and then kind of slowly come down and they reach their true curve and it's not a problem. So that comes with experience of knowing kids and following kids for a long time and kind of following growth curves and knowing what to be worried about and what not to be worried about. But for the most part, I do not worry about big, chunky breastfed babies. (laughs) Or babies that are breastfed that may not be. Exactly. Because there's plenty of those too. And it's fine. As long as they're following their curves and they're thriving, I'm not worried. Because I think that one of the reasons why I want to ask the question is for some women, they seem to be discouraged from continuing to breastfeed maybe even after four or six months. And some of them still want to breastfeed. And if their baby doesn't look like it's chunky or whatever, I think that maybe their family or friends may say to them, you know, you really need to wean this kid and get him on solid food because look at him. He doesn't have enough meat on him or or whatever. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this. I guess as long as the pediatrician is okay. Yep. And remember, it's all about comparing the child to themselves. So there are some moms that they go back to work and they're really stressed and their milk production goes down and we can work on ways to get their milk production up. But you may see a dip in the weight curve that signals that the baby's not getting enough calories or something has changed in how many calories they're taking in. And in that case, we may have to make a change. But if that baby's following their growth curve and they just happen to be a 25th percentile baby that they're gonna be around 25th percentile, so they're a little bit leaner compared to other babies, it's not a problem. You know, it's, it's really looking at that child compared to themselves and following the advice of your physician if they're concerned about their growth curves falling off or, you know, they, it's one of those things that we can tell based upon seeing the child over time. I think that you're putting a lot of people at ease because they really want what's best. I mean, if you're trying to adopt this lifestyle and you want your baby or or child to adopt the lifestyle, it's because you really want what's best for them. And we have a lot of noise out there discouraging us from doing it and knowing that it's, we, we just need to relax and it's things will probably take care of themselves. And, and as long as we just kind of keep these things in mind that you discussed, it's going to be all right. I wanted to tell everybody, and I'm going to put it in the chat as well, because Dr. Yami has a book, it's called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating right? Mm-hmm. How to raise kids who love to eat healthy. Yes. Wow. And so that's what really it looks important. like. 
Oh, look, there's the book. It's cute. It's got yes. little baby tomatoes on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cute. I love it. I love it. I think that that is really a, a wonderful book for us to encourage people to, to check that out because it makes a good handbook and it kind of addresses some of the things that we're talking about, but at, at a more detailed, deeper level. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it talks about not just what to eat and what to feed your children, but most importantly, how to feed your children, which is what I feel a lot of parents need guidance on the most right now. Because probably everybody that's listening to this, they know that they want to eat more whole plant foods. They want to eat more plant-based or switch to a completely plant-based diet. But how do I do this? How do I help my child eat these foods and present these foods? So all of it is in my book. Excellent. Excellent. I wish I, when I was going through all the things that I did, but we, we do what we can do and we make the best of it. I wanted to give you an opportunity if you wanted to talk to our audience as far as about where they can find you on social media. Sure. So I'm most active on Instagram at the and so I have a podcast called Veggie Doctor Radio. It's a weekly podcast. Right now, I'm mostly monologuing, but I will bring guests back in 2022. And my website is dryamispelledout.com. And if you go to dryami.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E, then you can get access to all of my freebies. There's a lot on there, including how to replace dairy, how to replace egg. For So the person that was wondering about the eggs, there's a whole, I have a whole guide on there on ways that you can have eggy things that aren't actual egg. <laughs> oh, that is so wonderful. And you have so many wonderful resources for people and even free ones. So there's no excuse, guys. You can get this knowledge. And I hope that this broadcast has given you some hope and maybe some things to think about. I talked about that earlier. If you're thinking about something that you heard on this broadcast and you want to type it in the comments so people who are coming back to it can see what you thought was a great pearl of wisdom. Dr. Yami, what do you want to tell the listeners as far as adopting this plant-based lifestyle with their family? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being an amazing parent and know that you are an amazing parent and that your child loves you so much, even the days that you have mom guilt or parent guilt. Okay. So hang in there. And I want you to just take a deep breath and relax and enjoy this journey. Have fun with it. Don't stress so much about what your child is or isn't eating. Just stay on your side of the road. You choose and prepare the foods and offer them. Take a deep breath and then let your child decide the rest. You got goosebumps with that one. <laughs> that was beautiful. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yami. This you are so just fun, so Amy. awesome. Oh, you are fun. And I love I love to listen to your podcast. I encourage everybody to hop on over there and we put the links for that for everybody as well because you have so much information and parents really need the more information, the more empowered that they can be. And they all really need to know all these things. Tell us what you're going to remember, what your takeaway. Remember to do that. But I want you guys to stay tuned for a special announcement. And I think, I don't know if Rebecca's in the background, but somebody's been engineering over there. So is that you, Rebecca? <laughs> I wanted to thank her if she's back there. And she's from PKA Sols. And she's been helping us a lot. And, and we really appreciate, oh, there she is. Hi, Rebecca. So she's been changing the camera angle so I can enjoy Dr. Yami. And I wanted to thank Jess Toss from Just Toss Voice. And she's also going to tell us, Just Toss Voice, who's coming up 
next. Chuck Carroll lost 280 pounds without going to the gym. Learn how Chuck lost the weight and has kept it off for over 10 years. Monday, December 6th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy, live. Well, I most of all want to thank all of you because the audience is what makes this broadcast possible and what keeps me going, what keeps Dr. Yami going to get this news out to you and this important information out to you. And I'm so glad that you were here participating and liking and sharing and commenting because it means a lot to us. We really want to share this information to you and to the world so that we can get more people on board with this healthy lifestyle. And if you guys could join me, because what I'm going to be doing with Dr. Yami is we're going to be doing my tagline, which is be strong, be well, and she's going to say be green. But if you guys can just type it in, in the comments below, that would be awesome. And then we could all just kind of do it together. So Dr. Yami, are you ready to sign off with me with my tagline? Yes, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Well, until I see you guys again, remember, be strong, be well, and be, be green. green. Yay! Bye-bye, <laughs> everyone. Mm -hmm.